A couple months ago, I sat down to record an interview with Palmer Lucky, and before the interview started, he was just going on an absolute rant about how he wanted to build these massive floating superstructures. His basic idea was to build a ship so large that instead of a aircraft carrier where you could just land one plane at a time, this would be something like Bagram Airfield, a forward deployed military base with everything that you need to run a full-scale military operation. So you had space for airstrips, hangars, hospitals, lodging, basically everything. It'd be acres and acres of space and it would just be floating there. Wouldn't really have the maneuverability of a aircraft carrier, but it would allow the U.S. military to set up shop outside of wherever, whatever country we were operating in and essentially create a full-scale military base in international waters. And it's an incredible, it's just a, such a crazy idea, but he didn't see it this way at all. He was thinking about this as a very real thing that could happen. He looked at different materials and was thinking about how this could be built. You'd have to build it on this beach and pour all the material into a mold and then float it out to sea. And it would be this kind of semi-permanent structure that would float around and be dragged out to wherever it needed to go. And then the military would be able to set up shop on it. And that's just the scale of how Palmer Lucky thinks about problems. He understands what's possible from a physics perspective, and then everything else is on the table. And even though, as you'll see with his businesses, he takes a very practical approach. He never gets lost in the insane ideas that a lot of people do. He never stops thinking at the absolute biggest scale. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about him today. Palmer Lucky is the founder of Oculus, the VR headset company, but more recently, he's the founder of Anduril Industries, the defense tech company. And he's really at the center of every important geopolitical story right now. Obviously, Russia, Ukraine, is super intense right now and Anduril's doing a lot of things and building a lot of technology that will be important to that conflict. And the same goes for China and Taiwan where Anduril is building things like submarines that will make the patrolling the Pacific a lot easier for the United States military and our allies like the Australian military. And he's built a multi-billion dollar company with Anduril. Like it's a very important company. We should definitely understand how this company got built and what it's doing. But there are a bunch of narratives that I want to dispel throughout this story. First is that Anderol, because he was coming off this massive success with Oculus, sold the company for billions of dollars, a lot of people wrote off Anderol as like a guaranteed success, that it was it would never fail. And that's just not the case. The company has been through a lot of really hard times. Palmer's had to work very hard to get through a ton of media controversies and all sorts of attacks. And also just from a technical perspective, they've had a lot of trouble trying to build this really audacious technology. And they've had times when they've tried to build new things and it hasn't gone so well. And they've had to work really intensely through these problems. And I think it's just a different side of the story. You don't often hear when you hear venture capitalists talk about Anduril and what a massive success it is. It is a massive success. It's done very well, but there's been a lot of really huge challenges along the way. And the, and the other narrative that always surrounds Anduril is that Palmer is the only reason that Anduril exists. And 
pretend that he is a singular figure and he is incredibly important to the company, but he's just the founder of the company. He's actually not the CEO. And what you'll see is that they really put together this dream team of people and the company really wouldn't work if they didn't have the whole team working together. And that's a really key takeaway because it's a violation of this great man theory that we'll discuss in a little bit. And he's interesting because he's this really passionate entrepreneur, this incredible technologist, this deep thinker, but he's not the type of CEO who's micromanaging the entire organization. He's not even the CEO at all. He's able to delegate that and knows, and he knows where to apply himself. And so that's a really interesting dynamic that we don't often see in Silicon Valley. So I wound up interviewing him and his entire team. And I really wanted to just understand how Anduril works, what they're actually building, because they have all these different products that kind of loosely tie together but I finally have a map of the entire company and how it was built and what products they have built and how they all fit together. So I'm going to take you through that today. So just to give you the scale of this company, the valuations in the multi multiple billions, they have billions of dollars in contracts and they have thousands of employees. They have tons of products at this point, sensor towers, drones, submarines, missiles, AI systems. We'll go through all of it and map it all out for you. And really like these technologies are now very clear, even though they've been working on them for years, now that the Ukraine-Russia fight is heating up, it's very clear that these technologies will play a really key role in deciding these geopolitical conflicts. So if we go back to the start of Palmer's story, he grew up in Long Beach, very middle class. His dad worked for the car dealership. His mother homeschooled him. And he was always tinkering with electronics and computers, but he was like building pretty crazy stuff. He was building like lasers and rail guns and Tesla coils. And he would sometimes injure himself playing with these really intense technologies that not a lot of people, everyone has a story where they were writing some code or hacking on a video game, but he took it to a completely different level with what he was building. And he, at a very young age, was obsessed with gaming and built a really intense PC gaming rig with six monitors and wanted this ultimate immersive gaming experience. So he saved up a bunch of money from working on a dock in Long Beach to buy this PC gaming rig, but it still wasn't immersive enough for him. So he started looking into VR and he started collecting virtual reality headsets. So he would work and fix iPhones or coach youth sailing or work as a groundskeeper, save some money and start collecting these headsets. And at some point he actually built up like a collection of 50 different VR headsets. It's like one of the biggest collections. And a lot of them were really expensive when they launched, but they could be bought really cheaply on eBay now that they're defunct. So at age 16, super young, he started building his own VR headsets and he would buy parts with money that he'd saved up and cobble them together. And then you'd think that he would really double down on that and go into technology and study engineering, but he actually went to Cal State University, Long Beach and studied journalism. And it really feels like he basically did this because he had a chip on his shoulder because he understood enough about technology that he could see that the way technology was being written about in the press was wrong. And he would notice little issues, sometimes big issues in, in tech press pieces about companies or technologies or products that he'd used and he would be frustrated. So he studies journalism to set the record straight. And this will be a really important theme throughout his career as he is duking it out with the press and trying to always get the, the narrative about him and his companies accurately represented in the media, which has been a huge struggle for him because so many different press publications have had, had it out for him from pretty much a very young age. So he was building VR headsets and starting to 
to get some traction where big tech companies were thinking about maybe hiring him to work on their headsets, figuring out what he could do to help them. But then he met this guy, Brendan Uribe, who is an entrepreneur, and Brendan convinced him to build a company. So they incorporate Oculus and they launched this Kickstarter in 2012. And it was a massive success. It was like one of the best Kickstarters at the time. They wanted to raise 250K, but they raised 2.5 million. And it was just a huge runaway success, tons of media and a lot of a lot of really dedicated developers and early adopters really rooting for this company. But they still had a problem. They had to actually go build this headset. And this is where Palmer really excels in building these dream teams. So the, the best person that you could possibly imagine hiring in the gaming world would be John Carmack, who's this gaming legend. He is responsible for Doom and Quake. And Palmer gets him to join as CTO, which was just like a huge turning point for the company. It made them way more legitimate. And so there were a lot of hurdles that they had to get over during the Oculus era. The first versions were very rough around the edges. There was a lot of VR sickness. You'd put on the headset and you would get disoriented and start feeling sick. And there was actually a problem during pitches. Like he was pitching one VC and and the VC got sick and said, hey, how are you going to fix this? And Palmer was like, I don't exactly know yet, but we're going to figure it out. And that VC passed. Founders Fund wound up investing and supported the company. And then that became a big reason why Android exists today. Kind of interesting how these things come full circle. So Palmer was raising money for Oculus and scaling the company, trying to deliver a consumer product and really get the product into the hands of consumers. They'd launched some dev kits and they were well received, but it clearly wasn't ready for prime time. VR was just going to be insanely capital intensive. There's going to be tons of hardware that needed to be built, custom chips. And we've seen all this with the Apple Vision Pro now where the vertical, like the vertical integration strategy and the custom silicon, the custom hardware that goes into that is really important. And since Facebook has owned Oculus now, they've spent billions and billions of dollars investing in this. Apple's also spent tons of money. But that was a, a turning point for Oculus where they sell the business to Facebook for $2.3 billion in 2014. Even though Palmer wanted to do Oculus independently and winds up selling to Facebook, he was dedicated to making VR happen. He genuinely thought that Zuck was bought in on the vision and would support the business. And it was the right partner to actually com- to continue to provide capital on an ongoing basis to make virtual reality happen at scale. He is a very individualistic person and he wasn't going to conform to the cultural monolith within Facebook, which was a very left-wing organization at the time. And he wanted to just, he wanted to support Donald Trump for president. And so he made a $10,000 donation to this political action committee, which actually, because it's a political action committee, it can't support Trump directly. So it was just running anti-Hillary ads, but it caused a massive like backlash in the press and a bunch of left-wing journalists jumped in and tried to make it look like he had crossed some line. But it was really ridiculous because obviously it wasn't even a pro-Trump donation. It was just anti-Hillary at the time. And then second, like they, the media quickly tried to link him to all these other Trump controversies through guilt by association saying he was on this Reddit board that was associated with this guy and that guy. And they really tried to put every possible controversy on Palmer, who's just this kind of young kid at the time. And then 
they started ramping up the pressure and basically arguing that he was creating like a material impact for Oculus and basically hurting the business. And that centered around this idea that third-party developers who were building virtual reality experiences for Oculus were dropping support for Oculus. And there were three developers that kind of came out and said that they were not going to develop for the Oculus. But it was really confusing because at the time, one one of the developers was actually joking. They made a physical card game and an they thought it would be obvious that they never were going to do VR support because they don't even make video games. They make physical playing card games and they just thought it was funny, but the media kind of ran with that. And then there were two other developers who did say that they weren't going to develop for the Oculus, but they never actually released a game and it was unclear if they were ever planning to release for the Oculus. So it wasn't really driving a material impact on the Oculus business, but the media made it such a big issue that Facebook started putting a ton of pressure on Palmer and they ultimately fired him. And Palmer really, it was obviously not a great scenario for him, but he did have the last laugh because there was a lawsuit and a hundred million dollar settlement against Facebook because the court found that Facebook had violated Californian law by punishing him for political activity. And I remember when this happened and I didn't support Trump at the time, but I really thought it was unacceptable that, and just undemocratic that we couldn't have someone that supports a different political candidate. The whole point of democracy is that you can support either candidate and we decide who the best candidate is by voting. And if you're in an organization or a company where you can't have a particular political opinion, that just seems like really problematic. I was very disappointed to see that happen at the time, but obviously this was like a really key turning point and it led him into doing probably much bigger and better things. So it's an interesting time for Palmer because virtual reality wasn't a political technology. It wasn't really something that was left wing or right wing or argued about in the political world, Palmer wasn't really focused on building a company that would shape political outcomes at the time, but the situation of Facebook brought politics to his door. So around this time when he's thinking that things are heating up at Facebook, he might get fired. He attends the Founders Fund CEO Summit in Canada. And while he's there, he meets Trey Stevens, who was an investor at Founders Fund at the time. He's currently a partner there. And Trey had worked for the government and he'd worked at Palantir and he was investing at Founders Fund looking for the next great defense tech company, but he hadn't really found anything that he liked. So the two of them start talking about starting a defense company together and the idea is that they could go after the big defense primes like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, these types of companies. Trey had recognized that these big American defense primes were falling behind. He saw it when he worked for the government and then also at Palantir that things were broken and Trey really understood the bureaucratic problems. But Palmer, on the other side, he really understood the technology problems. Like he had been building ramjets in his pool at home and hacking on all this crazy technology, like building rail guns and lasers and Tesla coils. Like he he understood what was possible in terms of technology. And he was always very disappointed that America hadn't been able to actually bring any of this technology to bear all of the big defense tech innovation had happened during the Cold War. But now that the Cold War was over, there wasn't really that much innovation going on. So Palmer hits it off with Trey and Palmer basically tells Trey, Facebook is about to fire me. So let's start this company as soon as I'm out of there. So when Facebook finally fires Palmer, Trey and Palmer start putting together their team and that idea of the dream team, like who is the John Carmack of this industry? Who can they put together to give themselves a really unfair advantage? That starts 
materializing. So they pull in Matt Grimm, who's the chief operating officer now, and he had worked with Trey at Palantir. And then Palmer grabs Joe Chen, who was an early Oculus engineer, to help with kind of the software side. But they needed a CEO. And they knew that Trey was still going to be investing at Founders Fund. Palmer was very much the founder, but not the CEO. He wasn't going to be running the day-to-day. So they went to Brian Schimpf, who was leading Palantir's engineering team at the time, and they pitched him and they said, hey, we're gonna build this. You're doing software for the defense industry right now at Palantir. We want you to come do hardware at this new company, Anderil. And so their pitch worked basically, and Brian joins up as CEO, and that's when Palmer kind of steps into this founder role. It's very interesting that even though he's super early and clearly could have adopted that CEO title and really insisted on running the company, like a lot of these founders in Silicon Valley and tech visionaries like often like to do, Palmer recognized that that having someone like Brian with experience kind of scaling a massive team at Palantir would be ultimately what would make Anduril successful. So they really stack the team. They have these five co-founders who are really talented and then they go and raise money. And of course, Founders Fund was driving the project since Trey was an an investor there. And so Trey would join as a co-founder and Founders Fund would lead the seed round and then they'd start building their team. At this point, they have the team and they have some funding, but they can't just go directly after Lockheed Martin building some massive plane or some replacement for an aircraft carrier, even though obviously Palmer wants to do that. (laughs) And I think that was actually in one of his early pitch decks. It's just too much. It just takes, it would just be too capital intensive. And I think even though their first seed round was, I think over $10 million, it was great, great. It's a lot of money, but it's not enough to go build a new fighter jet or something like that. So they have to start small. What happens is they focus on two specific projects. They have a bunch of different ideas, but they narrow it down to two different things. The first is this sentry tower, which is essentially just a camera on a stick that you can remotely monitor an area on a screen. And then there's some AI and image recognition that tells you what's going on in the footage and can trigger an alert if something shows up. And the other one was very different. It's an autonomous firefighting tank, basically a vehicle that could drive around during a wildfire and pour water or flame retardant on a wildfire without putting any firefighters at risk. Both of these technologies, they leveraged recent advancements at the time in just general technology. The costs were coming down in both GPUs and cameras. They're both getting better and cheaper. And in 2017, AI models were starting to get better. So there was ImageNet, which was this breakthrough in computer vision, and the hardware was getting a lot more commoditized. Like you could actually do stuff on an NVIDIA gaming GPU for the first time. Prototyping was easier, and then actually rolling out a functional product that was not built on completely custom hardware was for really the first time for what they were aiming to do, very feasible. So both of these projects, they were technically feasible and they also demonstrated Anduril's business model, which is this thing that's basically the flipped procurement model. So in typical defense technology contracting, the government will say, we have a problem and we want industry to solve it. Like we want to build the next generation of the fighter jet and it's the F-35. And so they put out this request for like pitches from the industry and every different defense contractor, they all submit a huge pitch deck 
for what they're going to build, and they go and look at all the people that they have on their teams, and they have tons of, and they basically turn over a resume book saying, yes, we can build this, and we think it'll cost this much, and then they bid the contract against each other, but nothing's actually getting built. And this was a big problem that Anderol set out to solve, which was that when these contracts get bid out, oftentimes they're handed out based on where the jobs are located. Like I think for the F-35, there's at least one job related to the F-35 in nearly every congressional district or basically in every single state in America. Every senator has something that helps them win their votes by bringing jobs related to the F-35 project. And that's obviously just a very inefficient way to build technology. So Anderol would flip that and they would go and do all all the research and development, actually build the prototype, build a functioning product, and then sell it to the government. And so both the firefighting tank and the Sentry Tower, they had working prototypes that they could go and demonstrate to the government and say, we think this solves the problem way better than anything that you're going to go out and bid a contract for. You should just buy this directly. So Palmer and the team are working on both of these projects, and the firefighting tank was going really well. It worked. I've seen pictures of it. It's really big and crazy. And they even got Jamie Heineman, the Mythbuster, to sign on to help build it. And they made the cover of Popular Mechanics. And there was a lot of attention on this, but there was no real political will behind changing how we fight fires. But at the time, there was massive demand for border security. So two things were going on. In the California wildfires, there were obviously terrible fires, but a lot of firefighters had jobs doing those firefighting tasks, and they were worried that this robotic tank would put them out of jobs. And so it became a political issue. Whereas with the border wall, there was a ton of support for this from the Trump administration, but there wasn't a lot of support for actually building a physical wall. That was too controversial. And also it just didn't really make a ton of sense in terms of even after you build the wall, it's really expensive and then you have to monitor the whole wall. So how are you going to do that anyway? So the virtual border wall concept was a way more like leveraged opportunity. So they could basically do more with less there. So they would put up these sentry towers, the cameras on a stick, and then they'd be able to monitor everything from headquarters and just look at the readouts and the displays and then use AI to detect if there were anyone crossing the border that shouldn't be and then dispatch border security instead of having the border security just need to patrol this wall that would cost a ton to build. And so they built the tower and they started getting it working, but there's this big problem with all defense contracting companies and all these startups that try and build new defense tech, they a lot of them get caught in what's called the valley of death. The valley of death is where you get a small like DARPA grant or SBIR, which is this small business incentive program. And basically you get a little bit of money for what you're doing, but you never get to a real contract, which is called a program of record. And a program of record means that it's something that the government is committed to buying on an ongoing basis. So when you think about the particular like rifle that the army uses, like they are buying those every year on an ongoing basis. When they break, they buy new ones. And that's like an ongoing contract. But if you're just building some new technology that they're not really sure, they're just testing it out, they'll give you some money. But then if you don't get to that contract, you never really get recurring revenue. You can never really scale your manufacturing and your business really never gets escape velocity. Like You never become a real business that people can actually value against or 
build like a business case for because you just have these lumpy grants that come every once in a while. You're basically just doing research. But this is another place where Palmer is really great. Ramping Anderol is a delicate balance. Like you need to tell the story and then keep everyone moving. You need to raise money on a certain cadence to make sure that you're hitting your milestones, improving the product. And then you also need to convince the government to go all in. Everyone talks about Anderol being this like controversial right-wing company, but they've actually structured the team in a very interesting way where the CEO, Brian, is Democrat and Palmer is a Republican, so they can speak to both sides of the aisle. And that's really helped them as they've scaled to stay relevant and not be seen as just, oh, it's only relevant when the Republicans are in charge or something like that. This strategy of continually building the product, making it better, doing these demos, and then proving the value before actually getting the contract works and eventually they get the sensor tower to program of record and they're basically out of the valley of death. But there's a problem because they're still not really solving their core mission. Like the whole goal of this was to revitalize the American defense sector and improve defense technology. And border security was, it was, a, it was an important step in that path, but it was not really key to anything that Lockheed was doing. It wasn't the big leagues any, yet. The whole team had been thinking about how geopolitics was shifting over the past decade. And it's really easy to look back on this now that we see Putin invading Ukraine and think, oh yeah, of course, this is always going to be relevant. But if you go back 10 or 20 years, people weren't really thinking about how the world was changing geopolitically. Basically, Palantir was started as a war on terror company, essentially. The whole goal was to use technology to stop terrorist attacks. And the war on terror had basically wound down, but we'd seen a shift geopolitically to the most important conflicts being between great powers. So Russia was becoming more aggressive and China was on the rise. And there's this question of how does the US remain competitive in a multipolar world where Russia and China are ascendant. And so that was really always the goal with Anderol was to have an impact on that global stage, but they just needed to get that sensor tower product to program a record and show that the flipped model of building something first and then selling it to the government could work. The team in Palmer, like they'd been thinking about this since they started the company. They knew things would change. And if you were paying attention over the last 20 years, Putin's basically turned Russia into a dictatorship and Xi Jinping has basically done the same thing in China and is now getting really aggressive with Taiwan. So all of a sudden, the whole idea of a peace dividend post-Cold War and democracy flourishing and the internet making every country a democracy and everyone getting along perfectly, the whole idea of history being over and no more great power conflicts, that was quickly being proven false. Anderol was basically in the perfect place at the right time because they'd been preparing for this for years. Drones had always been a logical way to expand the range of sensor towers. If you put up this camera on the stick and then you want to investigate something that you see far off on the horizon, sending out a drone to collect more information makes a lot of sense. So that was something that they worked on pretty early to link and expand the range of these sensor towers. And then they'd linked all this together with this operating system called Lattice that uses artificial intelligence to tag things in the data, synthesize everything and create a, a unified picture of all the data that's coming off of all the cameras, whether it's on a drone or on the sensor tower. This combination of sensor tower plus drone reconnaissance, it worked well for protecting the border, but it also worked well for protecting military bases. If you have a forward deployed military base, there's a lot of different things 
things that could come and attack you. It could just be somebody driving up in a suspicious vehicle, but being able to send out a drone to get a better look at that obviously keeps a soldier safe. So that was really important. And that's why after inking that first deal with the Customs and Border Patrol, they moved to working with the Marine Corps. And so Anduril was selling these sensor towers and drones to the Marine Corps, but there was still the problem of actual deterrence when it comes to when someone's attacked. It's not enough to just identify an enemy combatant. You actually have to be able to do something about this. And one of the things that was happening as technology was getting better was that drone swarm attacks were becoming more relevant, more prevalent. So in 2009, there was this kind of turning point where the Houthi movement in Yemen attacked a Saudi Aramco oil field with a drone swarm. And it was the first time when the battle lines had really changed. Instead of sending a big missile that then you could maybe try and take out with a counter missile, if you send a bunch of drones, the typical defenses were completely unequipped to deal with that. And it was obviously very cheap because DJI was man was manufacturing tons of cheap drones in China. And America doesn't really have the equivalent of a DJI. We've really fallen behind in terms of cheap drone technology. There's so many other manufacturers of drones, like Iran, is making larger drones and Turkey makes drones. So clearly like drone warfare was going to be a bigger thing. And now we see, it seems obvious with the Ukraine-Russia crisis, but now drones are a really hot button issue. So it's clear that counter UAS, as it's called, basically counter drone programs are going to be really important and it's gonna be key to defending American military assets. The team and Palmer start prototyping and he tries a bunch of different things to try and disable just a basic drone, electronic warfare, taking over the system, like jamming them, like shooting them down with lasers, all sorts of crazy stuff. But ultimately he finds that just smashing into it with another drone is the most effective way to disable an enemy drone. And so they build this product Anvil, which is basically just a kinetic payload. So just imagine just a heavy brick attached to a drone that can just go and crash into another drone. And it's the most effective because the drones can be built cheaply. You don't need to re really worry about any reliability things. There's no one on board. And this is a shift from these exquisite systems that the US military has loved building for a very long time into more attrition-based warfare. So the idea is your enemy is gonna be throwing a ton of cheap DJI drones at you. You need to be able to counteract that more cheaply then they can throw them at you because it becomes almost like an economic equation after a while. If they can keep lobbing projectiles at you for $1,000 each, you need to be able to take those down for cheaper than $1,000 each or else you're going to go broke as they just keep sending these to you. The initial demo that Palmer builds that knocks the drone out of the sky, it works, but it's still a very complex product. And the team told me that like the first time they demoed it, they didn't knock down a single drone. It was really tough to get the system to work, but they, they came back, they worked it it. They kept improving the system and eventually they did get the drone defense system working and they start knocking drones out of the sky and they get a major contract with the Department of Defense to do counter UAS. And that's another major turning point for the company where they've just de-risked that kind of entire part of their business. But these small drones are just one piece of the puzzle. There are dozens of systems that need modernization to revitalize the American military. And Andrew was well equipped to go after the drones because it was a new area. It was a bit of a greenfield. There weren't a lot of super established players, but clearly they want to go a lot deeper. And so they start expanding the scope and just their overall strategy. This is where they do something very interesting. Instead of just 
sticking with this idea of let's build everything internally, R&D it, and then take it to the military and say, hey, we built this amazing thing. Do you want to buy it? The flipped model. They start acquiring companies. And oddly, usually when young companies start doing acquisitions, it can be very rough. And oftentimes it goes poorly because it takes a long time to build up that skill set. But they were in a very unique position. They built a couple unique pieces of their business to let this work. So they bought a drone company called Area I, and that company made a longer range drone called the LTS that could actually carry munitions on it. It's called like a loitering munition, meaning that you put the drone up and it flies around, but it has explosives on it. And then when you're ready to, when you identify a tank, you can actually tell the drone to go and crash into the drone and explode, essentially. The LTS can do a lot of other things, and it's it can be launched from a helicopter, it can be launched from a submarine, it can be launched from a lot of different platforms, which is very versatile. But essentially, they built this really interesting drone, but the team wasn't really capable of scaling it and getting it into the hands of the military. And so the team was interested in selling to Anduril because even though they built a great product and the drone was working, selling it to the military was just way too hard. And they were worried about getting stuck in the valley of, the, of death. This is a very common thing in defense technology, and everyone knows about this. But Anduril had built this incredible sales team, essentially. It's basically their government relations team. And they'd hired this one guy, Chris Bros, to be their head of strategy. And Chris had worked with John McCain and was basically a legend in Washington, D.C. Like he worked on a lot of the defense procurement initiatives and a lot of the legislation that went to fund the military. So Chris comes into Anderil and builds out this team in D.C. that works directly with the government. And that makes it a lot easier for Anderil to take a company like Area I and the Altius drone and then immediately go and get a contract because they already have all of those working relationships. And so this strategy, it helped obviously in Ukraine where the drone warfare is really key, but it was also relevant to starting to think about the China strategy because Xi Jinping has been getting more and more aggressive towards Taiwan and the Pacific is a wildly different battleground than the Russia-Ukraine situation. Like in Ukraine, it's very attritional warfare. It's actively going on. There's people fighting over there right now. There's a lot of tanks, a lot of traditional munitions, and then a lot of cheap drones flying very short missions, just like over that hill or something like that. But in the Pacific, there's much longer, longer ranges of engagement and different needs to patrol different areas like around Taiwan. And so underwater submarines are really important in the Pacific and around Taiwan. So Anderil bought this company, Dive Technologies, which made a, it's a moderately sized submarine. It's probably about the size of a car right now, but it's, they're going to size it up and build a bigger one that'll be about the size of a school bus. And it's fully autonomous. So there's no one on board and it's electric and it can basically go and patrol, but then it can also have weapon systems on board. And within just, I think just a couple months of buying Dive, they were already able to get a big contract with the Australian military to actually build these things and roll them out. So this is just an example of how Anderil solved that go-to-market problem. And they're able to actually get new technology into the government because they understand how the government works. And, and so they explained it to me as there's three different buyers for military technology. There's obviously the soldier on the ground who will use the technology, but then there's also the commanding officer, the high-ranking ra- high military official who will be responsible for overseeing that project, procuring it, deploying it, and setting out any specifications that the technology needs to hit. But then there's also the legislator and the government 
person who actually maybe authorizes the bill that will actually provide the funding. And so understanding those three different customers and creating a really tight feedback loop between the three of them has been super critical to Anduril actually being able to scale their sales and get the products in the hands of soldiers. In general, at this point, the story is really far from over. Palmer needs to keep people focused on this stuff. He needs to keep scaling the organization. Like Lockheed Martin makes something like $60 billion in revenue annually, and Anduril is extremely small by comparison. But I think it's interesting to see how he's thinking about the business. And I think there's a couple key takeaways that we should go over. So I think the reason that Palmer's been successful in building this business is that first off, he's highly technical. He's been playing with this type of technology and tinkering and learning about the capabilities of various technologies for years since he was a kid. But he also has very strong convictions. And you saw that with the, the Facebook political controversy era, where he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And you see that when he's interviewed and people push him on things and ask him like leading questions. He never backs down. And that's clearly very important to Anduril's success and having this view that great power competition will be coming back. And it's only a matter of time. So you need to start building for it now. And then he's also just incredible at delegation and team building. As I mentioned a few times, like he is not extremely ego driven and he's willing to use the right tool for the job and give up control of a certain thing if he knows that someone can do it better than him. And that's a really important skill that I think a lot of people, they forget about. He's clearly put all the right people in the right place and figured out how to have the highest leverage impact in the organization. So he knows that Brian is going to be best at that CEO job, but the founder role can be very different. So he's still involved in jumping in, getting deep in the weeds and all sorts of technical issues. But at the same time, he's able to go and pitch a politician and tell a really compelling story about why this technology is important and why the military should be thinking about leveling up their technology, acquiring Anduril's products. And then he's also just very good at storytelling. Obviously, he's lived this kind of hero's journey where he had this incredible comeback after being fired from Facebook and built this second company. And a lot of people, when they get screwed over, they just ride off into the sunset. And it would have been very easy based on he wound up with a lot of money. He could have just relaxed. But he had this incredible comeback where he went and built another unicorn and had potentially even bigger impact than Oculus. And I think the valuation has already passed where it was with Oculus. And so that storytelling, it helps not only in, in fundraising and in the media, but also with sales and convincing the government and politicians that they need to move quickly on these particular projects. But it also helps internally. Like to this day, he sits in on pretty much every orientation session for new employees and kind of gets them excited about joining the company and really encourages them and sells like the mission of Anduril, why they're doing what they're doing. And then also he thinks very long term about this like global impact. Like I think that even though he's head in the clouds about some of these crazy technologies like the floating sea base, he really does think that's possible at some point in time. And he just knows that maybe the time's not right now, but he'll get there and he needs to take one small step at a time. And so I think that all combines to kind of show you why he's been successful and some of the some of the narratives around him are not quite right 
because he's obviously built this incredible team and he gets a lot of the focus because he's this very charismatic, very entertaining figure. But there's a lot more to it than that when you go inside this company. So I hope that's a good overview of Anderol in his career. And thanks for listening.